0: Welcome to the Portrait Detective podcast, where we dive into the collections of the State Library of New South Wales to discover iconic images from Sydney's past. Hi everyone, I'm Cassie Gilmartin, editor of PortraitDetective.com.au. I'm here with Margot Riley, curator at the State Library of New South Wales, co-founder of Portrait Detective and an expert in fashion history and photography. We're discussing some of our favourite images from the collections at the State Library based on Margot's research for PortraitDetective.com.au. And Margot, for those listeners just tuning in, tell us a little bit about Portrait Detective. Well, working at the State Library, I was often approached for um, assistance in
1: helping people to get an understanding of either images in their own collections or uh, images that the library held. Um, How could we uh, understand what was going on in the image? What information could we use to to get to a closer understanding of what people were seeing in pictures? So I came up with the idea to develop a guide for um, dating the visual information in images, I was very lucky to receive the state library's first um, staff fellowship back in 2007, and I was able to scramble through the library's collections, trawl through um, our framed pictures collections, go through all the cupboards, and just pull out a selection of. At this stage, we've got about nearly 200 images, not all loaded, but we'll get there. <laughs>
0: we will get there, um,
1: <laughs> and 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 start the process developing a prototype that would um, prove that you could do this visual analysis. And really unlock what was going on side on inside images. Then along came Cassie, because for ten years this concept sat on my desktop with no way of sharing it with the public. And Cassie was fantastic in supporting the idea and um, seeking funding. And with the library's uh, collaboration, we launched uh, the Petri- Portrait Detective website in 2017. And here we are in
0: 2020 talking to you about
1: another fantastic new image today.
0: I'm really thrilled to be part of it. Your research is fantastic. It just deserved to be shared with with people. So I'm really glad to be part of that. So let's dive straight into our image today. We're casting ourselves back to 1854 today. It was a time of huge change in the country. Colonies started to separate from New South Wales and self-govern. Cobb and Co came into being. Indigenous men sought work opportunities with the Native Police Corps. The first steam railway opened. Burlesque and theatre were huge. And people were pouring in from around the world in the hope of discovering gold. Oh, and a little event called the Eureka Stockade was about to kick off. Talk about an iconic few years. Among all the busyness and huge social change, a remarkable portrait of a young family was taken. And luckily for us, years later, the portrait found its way into the collections of the State Library of New South Wales. It's of George Walker Johnson, his wife, Anne Ellison, and three of their 13 children, taken in late 1854. And that's the image we're discussing today. And for everyone listening, you can see the image by tapping the link on your phone at the bottom of the podcast homepage or visiting portraitdetective.com.au slash podcast. Margot, I know you really love this image. Why is it so iconic to you? Well, being
1: a photo historian, it's just so rare to see a whole plate daguerreotype. So it's an incredibly unique survival in Australia. And beyond that, we actually know who the people are. So often images survive in public and private collections without these details. We have no idea. We have no idea who the people are. So, um, you know, it really limits how you can um, understand what you're looking at. So for people who are not sure, a daguerreotype is the first successful um, photographic process to be developed. It was invented in France by Louis Daguerre in about 1839. And Daguerre um, took out a copyright and he sort of locked down the process because, of course, he thought he was onto a huge money spinner. So the licence to produce daguerreotypes in Australia was actually bought by a man called George Baron Goodman. So he arrived in Sydney in the early 1840s and he took the first uh, Australian colonial uh, daguerreotype portraits. And the library is very fortunate to hold the earliest known surviving portrait, Mm. which is a photograph of Dr. William Bland that was taken in Sydney in 1845. Wow. Now Goodman uh, set up his studio in where Dimmocks is, if people know oh, Sydney. yes, on George where, Street. Yes, on George Street. <laughs> it was the old Royal Hotel, and in those days, of course, you needed natural light to take a portrait, and he had a blue glass studio built into the rooftop of the of the Royal Hotel, and that's where he set up his studio. and incredibly entrepreneurial photographers at that time, you know, to bring this equipment from Europe to Australia and he had the market sewn up pretty well. And daguerreotypes were expensive um, but and they were quite delicate. Um, they, it was quite a, a fiddly process to, to create the image. It's actually made on a copper plate, And um, it has a thin layer of silver, which after cleaning and polishing is bathed in an iodine vapour to create Mm -hmm. a light sensitive surface. It's then placed inside the camera and exposed, which produces a latent image. And then this is developed with a mercury vapour. With all of these vapours hovering around, mm. it was a pretty toxic yes. work environment. And very. unfortunately, a lot of early photographers worked in poorly ventilated spaces mm. and did their health did suffer. But the outcome of the process was a positive image which had a delicate mirror-like surface. So if people see a daguerreotype, it is the, the type of photograph that you have to tilt it around because it is a bit like a mirror. And as you move the image around, all of a sudden you'll see this extraordinary image emerge. That beautiful detail, really, really powerful um, likenesses, but quite Ghostly, and you know, mm. the, the mi- mirror as a memory, people have often called it. Um, they were, as I say, quite delicate. Um, they were affected by humidity and and you know, exposure to the air. So they were very quickly after they were made, they were sealed, and had like a, a strips of metal around the outside of the plate and put inside to inside a protective case to to um, preserve them. And in most instances, the gerotypes that people will probably see around if they they do, are much smaller in size than the one that we see with uh, the Johnson family. Um, The whole plate, as I say, was cut up and divided into different sizes. The smallest was the ninth plate. So if if people go to the State Library website and look at the William Bland um, daguerreotype, that is a ninth plate daguerreotype. Uh, And the prices, of course, went up the larger the image uh, um, size. And the smaller daguerreotypes are, are housed in, in very small protective cases, which have usually like a little hooked on them, and they're closed like a book, <laughs> and you, you can open them up, and they're really meant for private, you know, you know, contemplation, a bit like the, um, the um, portrait miniature of the past, mm-hmm. uh, something that you could carry, you could keep it close to you, but... Um, and they have a protective velvet pad on the inside to to keep the glass, um, to stop the breaking of the glass. But they were very delicate and very expensive for their time. Mm. And the whole plate was obviously much more expensive. I can
0: imagine, yes. Yes, but
1: yeah, again, you would need a whole plate to take in a group. Most daguerreotypes that you will see are one or two people. Mm. Unusual, again, to have a group. And there are, you know, five people in this image. And I had to recently do a bit of a calculation about what the cost I was about to um, ask this image. Yeah. Um well, in the beginning the, the first image taken by George Baron Goodman was said to cost the same price as a new hat or a box at the opera in 1845. Okay. <laughs> but so here this is 10 years later. And um, the daguerreotypes are probably slightly antiquated technology by now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the whole plate as I say, I, I found um, evidence to suggest it was probably about 56 shillings as the price. Mm-hmm. It was the closest I could equate it to, and a salary for a, a like a an agricultural worker at the time was about 100 pounds um a year a year right. and you have to do the maths yes yeah, so. but it come breakly if basically breaks down to it's almost two weeks wages wow to to that's a, to buy that's a lot of money. this yes yeah. Yeah, yeah. so yeah you'd be looking at you know 4 to 5 pounds mm. uh, to buy it which to... is a huge investment yes absolutely but um the other question um I, I think we need to think about too when we look at this is the um the way the image was made um it, Exposure time from the beginning of taking photographs by the daguerreotype was quite long. In, in the beginning, they couldn't even take portraits. They had to just take still lives. But eventually, as technology moved on, the exposure time reduced. Uh, but they still required the use of neck clamps. So in this scene, if we look at the scene, we have the parents seated at each end of a sofa. Mm-hmm. Each of them has a child on their lap and then the elder daughter is sort of sandwiched in between <laughs> mum and dad just to sort of keep everybody sitting firm, fairly still. Um, and the parents would have a neck clamp oh. but coming up behind the couch and, and holding them uh, still oh. in position.
0: It sounds very uncomfortable. What was the exposure time?
1: It was about thirty seconds, which probably doesn't sound long, but you can't hold a smile for that. No, which is why, yeah, exactly. Well, that would be the other
0: difficult thing:
1: staring straight ahead and, and you know, no wonder they're not smiling. (laughs) And the other issue was children. You know, it was very, very difficult to take pictures of children. You know, a lot of people say, you know, don't act with dogs or children. (laughs) And Um, these are quite young. Very young. Yeah. Well, three and. The eldest elder daughter uh, is is about five, and then the uh, George um, Junior is about three, and then the baby uh, John Simpson is only just about a year old. Uh, but what I think is interesting is if you look into the picture again, little George is actually holding on to his skirt, and perhaps the photographer has said, you know, clutch, and that will stop your hands moving. Um, but the baby's wriggled. And that's why he's blurred in in the photo. But it is interesting that photographers at this time charged more for taking images of children because of the skill and the time and the failure rate uh, for securing a successful portrait. And also, which I think is just hilarious considering you're just taking one image, they used to charge for every additional person in the photo. Oh, no. So there's five people in this shot. Gosh. Imagine if you had, you know, everyone got another child, another fee. Oh yeah.
0: dear. That's a bit unfair, isn't it? If you Mm. had a large family, well, well, they went on to have 13 children, only three at the time of this photo, presumably.
1: And we do have a quite extraordinary um, second image in the library's collection Mm. that came in at the same time that the family donated this beautiful daguerreotype, which is of the entire surviving family, taken in about 1888. So we'll try and load that up so that listeners can see um, the two ends, bookends of the family photo story.
0: Oh, how precious to have that.
1: Incredibly unusual. And again, beautifully detailed on the back with all of the names and the date ranges of all the children in the image. So
0: lucky to have survived. And that's one reason why this image is so rare. What are the other reasons you feel it's very rare? Well, I think that um, it's it's so
1: real. You know, so often Mm -hmm. when you look at images of this time, everything's so perfect. You know, everything's impossibly... Every hair is in place and people have really thought about what they're going to wear to the studio because it was a a once-in-a-lifetime very expensive um, investment, really. But in in this instance it's much more casual the family look hot and sticky like they've just <laughs> driven from kinton which is where they lived um and they're even a little bit grubby like the children definitely could do with a bit of a spit and polish, (laughs) which suggests to me that the image was really the result of an opportunity that was seized, Mm -hmm. rather than something that was carefully planned. Mm. Um, They had an opportunity, they got everyone together, and they basically bolted over to the studio and
0: got this photo taken. Got clamped and had the photo. (laughs) Indeed, yeah. (laughs) Uh, We can date this image very specifically, can't we? Unfortunately, though, due to the subsequent death of little George, who we can See on the left of the photograph at the age of three.
1: Yes, George was the Johnson's eldest son at this time, and he died in on the thirtieth of January in eighteen fifty-five. I think that's another reason why photography was so successful in the nineteenth century, because it was an era of you know hugely high mortality rates mm. um, of adults and children. So the the opportunity to have a likeness mm. of a loved one, um, you know, was really very, you know, something you wouldn't pass up if you had the opportunity. But the reason that I feel that I can date this image so closely uh, is the fact that, you know, the baby, um, uh, baby John, would have just turned one. So he was born in November 1853. Mm -hmm. So the image has to be taken after November 1854. And we can see that um, the children are, they're in summer clothes, They've got little socks on rather than mm-hmm. stockings. And if you look, the little boys, the short sleeves of their dresses, you can see they've got sunburn marks. It's
0: quite a sunburn, On their turn, arms. Isn't it? Yeah. And even
1: dad, you know, because he would have worn a hat um, most of the time, he's taken his hat off to have the, and you can see really deep um, sunburn, uh, some, sun, you know, shade line mm-hmm. on his forehead as well. So to me, again, this is probably a little bit fanciful, but you can imagine a Christmas or New Year visit to town. In this case, it was probably to Melbourne, uh, which would have given the family that really significant opportunity to have this portrait made, which unfortunately, within a few months' time, had become a memento mori.
0: Mm. Let's turn to what they're wearing now, specifically George and Anne, the parents. And the family became well-known in the the area they lived in, in Victoria. Were they a relatively wealthy family, given the cost of a daguerreotype as well? Oh, I think they would be classed as
1: successful rather than wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, George was very um, communally um, oriented. He actually became the first member, um, member of the Legislative Council for Kyneton. Um, and I think he was a successful, but he was a, car, a carrier. You know, he wasn't uh, landed, didn't have land, mm. acres and acres of squatting, squatting rights or any other such thing. So I think he was just a very successful and, um, you know, community-oriented person. And in terms of what they're wearing, it's totally appropriate to them being a successful middle-class, basically just one step up probably from trade, um, George Sr. is match, is wearing an unmatched suit of ready-made clothing, which was typical day wear for a non-professional man at the time. Uh, professional men and storekeepers would tend to wear a frock coat, which was a long, dark coat. There are other gentlemen on The Portrait Detective which um, listeners could look at that are wearing the frock coat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Anne, I think she's probably wearing a homemade gown um, and certainly it looks she has a centre-front fastening on her dress, which was quite typical for the period because so many women were involved in uh, child rearing and breastfeeding, mm-hmm. so it would be eminently suitable for breastfeeding. And in this instance, presumably um, John has been weaned by now. Mm-hmm. She's also because it's summer, she's able to open the front of her dress, tuck the linings back, and create a V shape. Mm-hmm. And then she's got a little fresh, whitely freshly laundered um, white undershirt. Um, underneath again white linens fresh white linens were a sign of domestic competency and mm-hmm. you know you would always have nice nicely laundered freshly it was a, sh- a sign of cleanliness mm-hmm. and uh, good hygiene things like that the boys both wear dresses because until they were about four or six, between four and six, when they were reliably toilet trained, mm-hmm. um, children all wore little dresses because it was much easier, of course, to change them mm-hmm. if uh, when needs be. Uh, and also at this time, because you had children dressed in, you know, all sexes worn uh, wore dresses till the age of about till boys were breeched. Little boys often had their hair uh, side parted. And as soon as possible, their hair would be trained. Right. You would determine which side of the head the parting looked best on, Mm -hmm. and then you would train the hair into the correct parting. And little girls, of course, you could only have a centre parting. Right. It was the only way to go. And well, it really wasn't until the end of the 19th century you start to get women having a side parting.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, that's a, a really good tip for people because often yes. you can look at photographs and, and even if you know that boys didn't wear uh Trousers. trousers until a certain age, it still can be quite Very tricky. Very difficult, yeah. So if you look yeah. at, the, at the parting of the hair, yeah. that will be a great clue. Yeah,
1: and I think too in looking at the little boys, you can see they're boys. Yeah. There, there is something about also about yes. the style of the dress. The, the, the dressing style is usually um, braid trimmed. They are slightly, they're, they're less fussy yes. than little girls' dresses. Mm-hmm. But, you know, big families, they would just recycle. They might take a frill off or put a frill on, you know. So, yeah, yeah it's it's mm. just an, um, an in Indicator.
0: Yes. Yeah. So I've been following your advice from episode one mm. when we talked about slow looking, which I love that term, um, and that's the concept of looking at every part of the image. I think I know I can focus more on the, the uh, facial features or what they're wearing, but it's that concept of really looking at every inch of an image. And when I was doing that with... Um, George Walker Johnson and his family, I could see uh, some black wristbands on on Anne's arms. And I wondered what they were. What was the significance of those? Yes, well, she
1: is wearing a pair of black bracelets. Um, They could be made out of bog oak. Or bog they could oak. be, yeah, which is um, petrified black, wood. Right, black, black. Um, and it was, you know, if you had Irish ancestry or European, they had uh, bog oak, was uh, German as well. Uh-huh. The, they had come from South Australia. So perhaps they were, They could have been a parting gift from somebody. Right. Um, she, who knows? There could mm-hmm. be an heirloom, you know, yeah. so quite appropriate for her to be wearing something special like mm-hmm. that to this kind of a session. Um, there's a pair of them, which again was quite common. You can see, I think, on the um, left arm, it does seem to me like there is um, perhaps a, um, a medallion, like an amulet, oh, okay, yes. in the centre uh, of of the of the, the band, and and it was quite common they would have um, ribbon, little ribbons, and often they were little segments um, that were, and you could slide the, the bracelet on or right. they would have a clasp. Anyway, they were quite common at the day of the time. They could also be mourning related. Um, well, that's if what I was jet. wondering
0: because of the colour, whether mm. it was indicating. Mm. Though, again,
1: it. you know, we're looking at a black and white image. So yeah. presumably it's black um, and, as I say, highly appropriate for her to have them. And they could be a gift or a, an heirloom. Mm. So could be significant. You know, she, she had moved away from her family. So maybe she'd been given a gift or who knows?
0: Yeah. Well, Margot, it's been terrific talking to you as always to understand more about the history and context of this iconic image. (laughs) I've certainly loved getting to know George Walker-Johnson and his family. And thank you everyone for being with us today on the Portrait Detective podcast. And thank you to the State Library of New South Wales and Create New South Wales for their continued support of this project. I'm Cassie Gilmartin. And I'm Margot Riley. For more on
1: the image we've discussed today or to learn more about the other Portrait Detective images that I've researched, visit www.portraitdetective.com.au and, of course, join us on our next episode as we discover more iconic images from the State Library of New South Wales collections.